Ben Haybig and one of the pastors here, and that was Tim Udodge, another one of our pastors who was leading us in worship. Uh, glad you're here. If there's anything that we can do for you while you're here, if you don't know where something is or who to ask, uh, just ask anybody, and we'll try to get an answer for you. But we're so glad that you're here. We are studying the life of David this, uh, this season of the church, so we're going to be in Second Samuel, mostly chapter 6 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. Let me say one thing real quick before I read the passage and we dive in. Uh, Tim announced about the regroup gathering this Friday. This is for our community groups, and I, I just I want to strongly exhort, put this under the, the category of strong exhortation, whatever that means, that if you're uh, a facilitator especially, but even a host, or just if you're involved in the community group, that somebody from your group be there. And if there's more than one person from a group, that's great, more the merrier. But uh, as I said a couple of months ago when we got, you know, when the year started back, community groups are not just a program that our church does. They're not like a component, like, oh, yeah, here's youth ministry over here, and here's middle schoolers over here, and this is one thing that you can do. This is just part of the lifeblood of our church. I mean, it's more accurate to say that our church is comprised of community groups. And if you are visiting and thinking, you know, I may want to try on downtown Prez more than I have, and you may be coming from no church background, you may have been away from the church for a while. Uh, if that's the case, I'm just, I'm thrilled that you're trying this either on for size or back on for size, but I, I would encourage you to make another part of that to go to one of these groups, not just come on Sunday. Love that you're here, but try one of these on. We don't assign them, uh, but they're just a huge part of our lives, so really exhort you to have somebody there from your group Friday night. Should be a good gathering. Um, okay, enough said. Second Samuel 6 let me just say this briefly. If you've been here, we're studying David, the famous King David from the Old Testament, and just week after week after week after week, we've been saying, all right, David has been anointed king of Israel. So he's already anointed. He's not yet on the throne. Uh, king Saul has been on the throne, the first king of Israel, who just kind of goes from bad to worse. Uh, really didn't have, he didn't have much of a good run at all really spirals down, tries to kill David more than once, and is on the throne. All right, since we last left off, Saul has died in a battle. Uh, His son Jonathan, who is David's beloved friend, has also died. David has been uh, sort of re-anointed or more publicly anointed king of Israel. So finally, after all this, you know, waiting and talking about it, he's on the way to the throne. And uh, we're going to see that he does this big thing, and it's not just symbolic, but it's partly symbolic, is that is he's making his way to Jerusalem. doesn't have to be in hiding anymore, right? doesn't have to be in the wilderness. He's going to sit on the throne. That he wants the Ark of the Covenant to be there. Now, let me just say this, and then I want to read the passage. Um, if you were looking at this passage in a drama class, Now, understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is fictional. I'm not saying it's drama. It's historic narrative. But I'm saying if you were looking at it through through the lenses of drama, this is important to understand. The ark is not so much prop as it is character. Don't think about it just like an object. This is God's means for showing people what he's like. All right? 2 Samuel, I'm going to read one verse from the end of chapter 5 because I want you to hear just a phrase 
and then chapter 6. By the way, this went from one sermon to two sermons as I was studying it, which means that doesn't require any action on your part. Just if you'll come next week, that'd be great. But I, I just thought there's so much here. There are these two big things I want to unpack. I thought if I try to unpack them all this morning, I'll be exasperated. You'll be exasperated. That's no good. So I'm going to try to just do one thing this morning, and then, Lord willing, uh, we, we can get to the second one next week. But let's start in Second Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated the Philistines there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. In chapter 6, verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal-judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. And I'm going to stop there. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we're getting to do this. Thank you for singing. And thank you for praying. Thank you for uh, the sight of each other. Thank you for confession. Thank you for assurance. Uh, Thank you now for your Word. And please open our ears and open up our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you saw this piece um, in the New York Times. It appeared last, I believe, last Sunday. And it, was, it just was apparently shared a lot online this last week or so. But it's about a writer named Kate Bowler. And she, she came out with a book fairly recently called Blessed. And it was a is an an in-depth study of the history of the prosperity gospel in the United States, uh, especially. And and prosperity gospel, think kind of televangelist, name it and claim it. Uh, God wants you to be blessed. And by blessed, that means better health, better finances, better relationships, all that. And it just so happened that Kate Bowler recently was diagnosed with cancer. And she said it was just this, this incredibly jarring experience to have traveled with people that, that were involved in the prosperity gospel movement, to go to these big, like, televangelist uh, studios or go hear big preachers or, or go to healing services. 
And uh, the name of this piece is called Death, the Prosperity Gospel, and Me. And she talks about that the God that's presented in, in the prosperity gospel, she's, and she probably understands it as well as any academician does. She says that it's a very American God. And, and it, in the form of this God wants to bless me as I define blessing and on my terms. Not necessarily on his terms. And she's processing that, and then she's diagnosed with cancer. She talked about the experience of um, a neighbor who I think would, would self-identify as a Christian who came over when uh, uh, he or she found out about the diagnosis and um, the husband answered the door. And this person, well-meaning, said, well, you know, um, God never does anything without a reason. And her husband said, really? Well, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear the reason why my wife has cancer, why that's God's plan. And what was, what was the neighbor doing? They're, they're, try, they're trying to fill in the gaps. They're trying to say, look, he's, he's the blessing God. There's got to be some reason he's doing this that we can explain and that we can understand. And, and Kate Bowler ends this piece by saying, I, I don't understand it. But isn't this a very American God that we bat around? You know, bless me as I define it. And on my terms. And uh, that is very American, but people have been doing that a lot longer than there's been in America. That we want, we know that God's got the power. If, if you believe in him, if you can see there's a God, we know God has the power. And so he's got the power to do the blessing that I want. So I want him to bless me the way I think about being blessed. I'd have to say that at some level, David and the Israelites are thinking in those terms. And now all the reasons for wanting the Ark of the Covenant to go with David into Jerusalem are bad. But, you know, where God is, his blessing goes. David is finally, after this hiding out and waiting and hiding out and waiting and suffering, is going to sit on his throne that God set him apart for and rule. And he wants the Ark of the Covenant to be there. And in ways that no one could have anticipated, God shows what he's like. And let me just say this, uh, this morning are going to be kind of the dark cloud truths with good news. I don't ever want to send you out the door with nothing but bad news. Uh, next week is going to be a little bit more of the, of the cheerful sunny sky truths. But all this is part of understanding the good news, part of God revealing who he is. And l- listen, the end game of life is not for us to like get through our to-do lists. And the end game of life is not for me to, you know, like maximize my options and maybe have a family and maybe have children and maximize their options. That is not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to be close to God and to know Him as He actually is. The ark reveals what He actually is like. So here's what I want to look look at. Uh, First off, just the meaning of the ark. What is this thing? And then the presence of the ark. Now, next week is going to be about the presence of the ark too. But let's start this morning. The meaning of the ark, the presence of the ark. Um, The meaning of the ark. What is the ark? This is an object that God commanded to be constructed. And it, um, it lived, you might say, first in the tabernacle. That was God's tent. It was in the middle of all their tents. And then ultimately would find its home in the temple. And in the tabernacle in the temple where it was supposed to stay is in the Holy of Holies. 
It's uh, about two feet and a quarter wide, about two feet and a quarter high. It's about three and three quarters long. It's made of wood. It's covered with solid gold. It has a lid on it called the mercy seat with uh, these two angels facing each other, looking down, cherubim. And it has four rings on it, which poles went through, and by which you would carry it. And that's just what it looks... If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, it pretty, is pretty accurate. I don't think it is. I think they just made that one for the movie. But uh, um, <laughs> as far as I know. But... Uh, but that's not really the meaning of it. Now, if you want to know what it means, verse 2 actually is a great place to at least get your feet wet. Look at verse 2 of our passage. It says, David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called... Now, and I'm not going to really go into this. The ark has essentially been in someone's house for 70 years with only one exception that we know of, where it came out to sort of do something. But for 70 years, it's just been in this... Ha- the tabern- It's not living in the tabernacle. To bring up from there the ark of God, now get this, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, there, there's really a lot there. First off, it says that the ark is identified with the name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord? Because it's more than just a name. Like, it's more than just a proper noun. His name is who he is. The name of the Lord is all who God is as he is God. You can just encapsulate that as that's his name. And here's what that means. And this is a mystery. On the one hand, God is present everywhere. Right? And the universe can't contain him. And they knew that in the Old Testament era. But in this special, unique way, he so identifies with this object, the Ark of the Covenant. This is not something that we manipulated. He chose to do this. He identifies with it so closely that you can say that where the Ark is, the Lord is. His name is there. If the Ark of the Lord is in your midst, that means... Not pretend, but for real. The Lord is in your midst. And look at, it, look at the language of verse 5 because it brings this out. It says, you know, when the big celebration is happening, verse 5, David and all the house of Israel, now get the language. It doesn't say we're celebrating before the ark. It says they were celebrating before the Lord. How do you know that? Because the ark was there. And here's the other thing. Um, verse 2, it talks about that the Lord is enthroned over the cherubim on the mercy seat. And that, that language shows up in other places in the Old Testament. It shows up in the Psalms that God is enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, you know, I mentioned that you've got these, these rings on the sides of the Ark. Poles go through them and, they, and it's to be carried. That's how you would transport royalty in the ancient Near East. But for Israelites... King David was not carried around that way. What was carried on the shoulders of men? The ark. It was a way of, it was a visual way of communicating. Ultimately, God is our king and this is his footstool. He's the great king of Israel. 
Uh, who was supposed to carry it? Who was supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant? And the reason I've got that little passage in italics underneath the main passage, this is from the book of Numbers, and I want you to see this. This is instructions, uh, or, or just a, a little detail about the Levites. The Levites, just for background, were, were the clergy. And the clergy had different divisions. Hang with me here, because I know this is Old Testament-ish. One of the divisions of the Levites was the Kohathites. And the Kohathites had a very specific job. You get a little window into it right here. Number 7, verse 6. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Because their full-time job is not working with land or field. You know, their full-time job is... Uh, being Levite, so he provides for them their own oxen, their own wagons. But get this, to the sons of Kohath, that means this division, Moses gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. When they broke down, when they set up the tabernacle, the Kohathites carried everything. The number one important object that they carried was the most important object, we could say, in the world but certainly in Israel. The number one object they carried on their shoulder was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you can already see that something's off here. Because in our passage, where's the Ark? It's on a cart, and it's being pulled by oxen. This is where the presence of the Ark is, if I can put it this way, uh, is problematic. Not because of it, but because of um, who's around it. Now, what happened when the ark is brought that way? First off, you've got a huge celebration. Uh, let me, let me, like, look in verse 1, just to think about the numbers. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. You know, in the Bible, you get lots of big numbers, you know, 30,000. You think, okay, like, in, in my mind, when I read 30,000, I think 100. And I thought, okay, so what's, what is 30,000? The, um, you know, the wellness arena, formerly the Bilo arena, the well uh, I looked it up online, a maximum capacity in there is uh, the high 15,000s. So 30,000 roughly would be um, the well maxed out twice. That's a big group of people. And it says they are celebrating. And when you hear celebrating, don't think like, you know, John Philip Sousa march, you know, down a boulevard of Washington, D.C. There's tambourines, and there's cymbals, and they're singing songs. It said they had castanets. You know what castanets are? You ever seen a flamenco dancer? And they do the, you know, those are castanets. So you've got people just singing songs. and It's more Woodstock than Washington, we could say. And people just doing castanets and singing their songs. And I think we would have been uncomfortable probably. Or maybe Brian would have been uncomfortable. but So two arenas worth singing, it's awesome. He's finally going to sit on the throne. They just, I mean, they just took it to the Philistines. Saul is dispatched. It's going to finally be this happy ending. So the ark is making its way there. Now, we don't get a lot of detail about it, but probably for expedience, see, the ark is put on a new cart. They wanted to use it, never been used before. Special, special, you know, delegated cart. And the oxen that were pulling it, they hit a rough patch and they moved funny. And so the cart was tugged 
and the ark began to go off. And one of these, either sons or grandsons of the guy whose house had stored the Ark of the Covenant, Abinadab, either one of his sons or grandsons, a guy named Uzzah was walking by, and he did what any of us would have done. This is the Ark of the Covenant. It holds the Ten Commandments. It holds the first high priest's staff. It holds the last sample of manna in the world. It's incredibly special. The Holy of Holies is the Holy of Holies because it lives there. It's about to tump over on a dirt road. And so Uzzah did what? And the text makes it clear that God struck him down. The passage goes out of its way, not to say that like it was falling over and maybe like struck him and he died from the impact. It makes it very clear. God struck him down because he made contact with the Ark, with the ark of the Covenant. And here's the thing. That was, that was just one of those reactions, instinctive, uh, not rational. But deep down, what did Uzzah think? Uzzah thought what any of us would have thought, which is what? If it's between the dirt on the road and my hand, my hand is a much better option. And you know what? Biblically, that does not check out. And this is a window into who we are. Uh, The sand and the rocks and the dirt have never rebelled against God. It's affected by our rebellion. And it can produce thorns and things like that because of our rebellion. But it has not rebelled against God. But this thing right here has been all about it. When that came in contact with the ark, the holiness of God rang out. And now I want to show you why I put that passage from the, from the previous chapter. Look at this language. This is when David is just taking it to the Philistines. Before he's going to move toward his throne, it says up there, chapter 5, verse 20, David defeated the Philistines there and he said, wow, why did we do so well in this battle? The Lord has broken through my enemies. Now then go down in our passage to verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. The Hebrew in those two verses is identical. Why is that important? Because you would expect the holiness of God, the power of God, to ring out against God's enemies. But Uz is one of ours. Uz is a good man. Uz threw his hand up there because he thinks the Ark of the Covenant is special. He's walking beside it because he believes that the Ark of the Covenant is special. And God dealt with him like he would deal with an enemy. And it's interesting to note how David responded. Eventually he was afraid, but what, what did it say? What was his emotional reaction first? He was angry. And there's not a lot of detail given. It doesn't say he's angry at God. Where was the anger probably directed? I mean, picture, I hope this will not be you. I hope this is not prophetic. 
But, you know, picture if you've put off your taxes till April 15th, and you're one of these people for whom the post office is staying open to postmark things till midnight so that by the letter of the law you did get it in on time. And, like, you knew you should have started sooner. And you also knew that your printer was low on ink. But you waited. And you thought, I'll get it in on time. And just it got away from you. And you didn't have time. And you're needing to print off stuff. And then the printer runs out of ink. And now, you know, the office supply places are all closed. And so you're going to be late. You're going to be late. And you didn't even get to file an extension, you know, in a timely way. And you're just angry. In fact, you're furious. At whom? Yourself. You know, it's like the old saying about we have met the enemy and it is us. David knew enough of the law of God to know the Ark of the Covenant is to be carried by the Kohathites. You don't put it on a cart to be expedient. And he let that happen, and a man died. And he was angry. And then he was scared. Because what did he thought? He thought, man, Philistines... There's some left, but largely dispatched. We've got them shaking. My predecessor, God took care of that. He's dead. Going to sit on the throne, the Ark of the Covenant's going to be in Jerusalem where it should be. This is going to be fantastic. Goodness is just going to shine out of Jerusalem. Well, where's goodness going to come from? It's going to come from God. What did God just do? He struck down somebody that seemed to be a faithful man. So What do we do? And you know what? This is the second time this has happened in the Samuel narrative. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but in 1 Samuel, there's an episode where the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They thought, oh, this is great. We've got the secret weapon of, of, of the Israelites. And then just everybody starts getting sick. And so it'll go to the next Philistine town. Everybody gets sick. So they said, like, get rid of this thing. They put it on a cart. They put it on a cart. They send it into an Israelite town, and the Israelites see it come in, and they they get it, and they celebrate. But a few men in that town looked at the ark in the wrong way. And God struck them down. And the response of the other townspeople was, where do we put this thing? What do we do about God being this kind of God? That's exactly what David is saying. In that passage, it's almost like a a parallel. He says this, uh, verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And then get this first part of verse 10. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Picture this, picture two arenas worth of people who were just woodstocking, if you want to make that a verb cymbals and tambourines and castanets and singing songs and dances. And it all went dead. People in the back have no idea what happened. Everything goes quiet. 30,000 plus people just start to walk home. And we'll talk next week about what they did with the ark. Um, you know, I, I'm required by law to make a, a couple of references to Raiders of the Lost Ark in this sermon. So let me go ahead and do the second one. The, do you remember the scene? I guess this is about halfway through the movie where 
Indiana Jones thinks that, uh, that Marion has been killed. She's not. Sorry for the spoiler. The movie's been out for like 35 years. Uh, and so he's at this, he's at this kind, of, uh, kind of Moroccan-looking cafe, and the monkey's crawling on him, and he's, drunk, he's drinking too much. And, and the bad guy, Belloc, finds him. And, he's, and he is an impassioned you know, seeker of treasures and archaeological things, and they're always at it, back and forth. And so he comes and finds him, and he says, Jones, do you realize what the ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. Biblically, I would say kind of, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the metaphor, if I may. Instead of transmitter, I'd say that biblically speaking, the Ark of the Covenant is a transformer. Uh, I don't mean a robot that can turn into an 18-wheeler and back. I mean, you know, the, the big drum up at the top of the pole that the power lines go into. Power lines, we get used to those. There's so much power going through these things that men who have worked on them, men and women, I guess, and something went wrong like their arms have been blasted off. They've been just struck dead. Uh, It's burned a house down. It's burned a yard up. So much power. The same power goes into a house and a child can plug in her nightlight and be safe and happy. Same power. How can both of those things coexist in a little bit of space? And it's because of this transformer that it makes this level of power accessible, approachable. The Ark of the Covenant, and by the way, only approachable besides the Kohathites, up close by one man, once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Stay tuned for next week. But here's the question I want to ask. I want to ask y'all: um, Does God use a transformer in the New Testament era? If the Ark of the Covenant is the transformer, physical object transformer in the Old Testament era. Is there a physical transformer in the New Testament? And here's the remarkable thing. There is a physical thing that is God's transformer, but it's not an object. It's a person's body. It's what we call the incarnation. I mean, if, if you want a little mini-church history, the big thing that the church after Christ for the next two or three centuries, just had to work on and think about and hammer out and debate about, the dominant issue was, is Jesus fully God? And how can you be fully man and fully God? I don't think anybody ever answered that question, but the Nicene Creed, this ancient creed, came out of all that thinking and debating and study and prayer and it makes it very clear where the church landed. And this is just Catholic Christianity. I don't mean Roman Catholic. I mean Catholic, worldwide, core, baseline, foundational Christianity. Jesus is God of God. Light of light. 
Very God of very God. He is equal in power and glory to the Father. Now think about this. If that's true, the Son of God, equal in power and glory to the Lord who struck down the Philistines, who struck down Uzzah, he could walk up to a dead person and raise them. He could walk up to a leper and touch the leper and the leper would not die. The leper would be healed. Now, as you hear that, I want, I want you to be thinking, because if you're thinking, I hope there's a question forming in your mind. Well, then how is that? That's not fair. I mean, if we're going to say that God is holy, and when he comes in contact with sin, there's this bursting out. And if we're saying Jesus is that God, and he comes in contact with sinners, and they don't, there's no bursting How is that fair for the people that experience the bursting? Here here is the thing that the scriptures are pushing us toward. Is that when God came in the flesh, when God sent his son, who is God, in the flesh, and he lived with us. John's language is he tabernacled with us. The ark of the covenant came to us as a man that when our sin and God in the flesh came into contact, there was a bursting, but the bursting wasn't out on us. The bursting was on Jesus. That God treated him like the enemy. Treated him like his people deserve to get treated if they come in direct contact with God. And it falls on Jesus, and he is struck down by the justice and wrath of God. Do, do you have a category for the healthy fear of God? And I don't mean a slavish fear, and I don't mean a fear of if I step out of line, God's going to crush me. That's an unhealthy fear, and it's a completely illogical fear because we're always stepping out of line. It's not like we're mostly in it and occasionally step out. But what I'm talking about is all about who God is and what he's done. What's the most famous hymn? What's the most famous hymn? Amazing Grace. Now, a lot of people know the first verse. Almost as many people know the second verse. What's the beginning of the second verse? What does John Newton say? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to do what? To fear, and then grace my fears relieved. And what I, what I want to push us on is, don't run to the second one without giving the first part its due. That the first thing Newton says is, John Newton, that it was the grace of God that taught me to fear. Do we understand that the reason that the crucifixion of Jesus is so terrible, and not just the physical sufferings, which were torturous, horrible, mutilating, but what was worse was to fall under the Father's anger 
and justice. That the reason that's so bad, it says in the New Testament, that is God demonstrating who he is. Demonstrating who he is toward whom? Toward us. Um, I've got big sin and I've got a lot of garden variety sin. Um, I, the, I, I act surprised by my big sin, like that's a shocker. Like, how, wow, how could a good person like me do that? The garden variety sin, selfishness, whatever. I've, I've gotten used to that. I've just gotten used to it and accustomed to it because I've lived with it my whole life. And because I've gotten accustomed to it, I think like it's not a huge deal. Look at the cross and you'll understand what the deal is about our lusts, our fighting, our stinginess, our self-absorption. That's it. Um, you know, uh, you may have heard this song at Easter. You may be hearing it this Easter here. Uh, were you there when they... Cru- it's, a, it's an old spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It takes you through the whole death and resurrection of Jesus. But what's the refrain in that song? It says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to what? To tremble. And, and, and I hope that you're going to hear the joy and the proneness of God to bless. I hope you've already heard it, that he's willing to burst through on his son so that he doesn't have to burst through on his people ever. That he does that because he's love. It's not just that Jesus is love. God is love. The Father is love. He so loved the world, he sent his son. But he is to be loved and he is to be feared. Let me say this in closing. It's interesting that we tend to think, wow, when God really works in someone's life, the first thing he's going to move them toward is to be at ease with him. And you know what? Historically, often when God really bursts into someone's life, there it is, bursting in, that what he first opens their eyes to is that he's fearful. But what to do about it? And I just want to read you one quick example and then I'm done. Have you ever heard the name John Bunyan? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Most of us haven't read it, but there was a time where if, a, if an English-speaking household owned two books, they owned the Bible and they owned Pilgrim's Progress. He, has, he wrote an autobiography called uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and I've said this before, I don't recommend it. The, uh, well, I don't recommend it if you're prone at all to melancholy or painful self-reflection because this will be like high-octane um, fuel for that. But he just... It's amazing, though. John Bunyan struggled with these things that we struggle with. He would think, okay, I'm good. I'm good with God. I'm going to heaven. And then he would feel this strong sensation of, but what if the Muslims are right and you're wrong? Have you ever, like, been sitting in a red light and wondered that? And he would wonder that. Or he would uh, be coasting along and feel like he had God's pleasure and then just feel this attack of, how could you possibly possibly be a Christian when you did such and such? How can you be so unthankful? How can you be so self-absorbed? You must not be a Christian, and it must be that you're going to perish. It just killed him. And so he writes about one day, he was just thinking about how bad he was, that God's going to get him. 
And I'm just going to read these words, then I'm done. He said that, I remember that one day I was, I was musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart, considering the enmity that was in me to God. That scripture came into my mind that, quote, he hath made peace through the blood of his cross. That was part of our assurance this morning. By which I was made to see both again and again that God and my soul were friends. By Jesus' blood. I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through his blood. That was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. I commend that to you. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that your grace would teach our hearts to fear with good, healthy fear and that your grace would our fears relieve. And for the man, the woman, the child who's here who has never rightly feared you but has been covered with bad fears, cause your grace to teach their heart to fear right now. And would your grace relieve their fears? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.